Our scripture reading this morning will come from the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and I will begin reading at the 15th verse to the end of the chapter. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning our reading at verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunken with wine wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. Nevertheless, do ye also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband. Thus far the reading of God's word. A few weeks ago, I had occasion to go into a store looking for a magazine to purchase. I decided that I wanted to get a copy of a particular periodical that I do not subscribe to. I didn't know quite where I was going to find it, and so I went into, it was either a Thrifty or a Save-On, and uh, so I began looking for this particular magazine. And as I was there, I was fascinated at the variety of uh, magazines that could be found if one was looking for something to read. Uh, I didn't realize there were that many hot rod magazines or uh, gun magazines to be purchased, but I knew there were such things. And I suppose I also knew that there were bride magazines. But what impressed me was the number of them and the expense of them and the um, great lavish uh, uh, efforts that had been put into them. Yeah, that's really a thriving business, isn't it? Even though marriage has for many years and our society been looked upon with some disdain and indifference even, um, it's coming back into its own. 
and there is a thriving commercial industry out there, of uh, the marriage industry, if you will. There is this business of making sure that brides have everything prepared just right for their weddings. Can you imagine what a tacky and embarrassing scene it would be if you were to go to a wedding and there, instead of having everything set up just right and beautiful music playing and the flowers nicely displayed and everybody taking their place at just the right time and saying the right things, going through all the right motions and having everybody look just as beautiful as they possibly can, nicely adorned, well attired, well spoken, then instead what we find is the bride's late for the wedding. People have forgotten to set up the chairs. The music is really quite poor, embarrassingly so. And as she finally arrives, it turns out that she's cared nothing for her complexion and she really doesn't look very good at all. Uh, there, in fact, she might have made some use of makeup to help the way she looked that day. Her hair is disheveled. Her clothing, she apparently has been cleaning the house that morning before she came over because her clothing is all spotted and wrinkled. And to make things worse, as she's coming down the aisle, there she has all of her former boyfriends standing up, giving her a kiss on the way, tugging at her, asking whether she really wants to go ahead with this. I think, you know, if we were to go to a wedding like that, we would all kind of hide our faces and try to crawl out. I mean, it would just be terrible. It wouldn't just be tacky. It would be downright immoral and embarrassing, and we'd want to get out. A blemished bride. See, that's why we have bride magazines. That's why we have wedding hostesses. That's why we have mothers who fret for months over their daughter's wedding. Nobody wants a blemished bride. Nothing that's going to be untoward should take place. Nothing that should reflect adversely on the family or on the individuals involved should happen. And everything should be presented in the best of light. There should be a brilliance about this, a beauty about this service. Weddings are supposed to be that way. The month of June is upon us. This is the big month for weddings. I'm doing a wedding next week myself. And I can just imagine what would happen if the people involved in that wedding were willing to accept a blemished bride. And if they were willing to accept a blemished bride, they wouldn't be going through all the motions that they're going through now, all the activity, all the preparations that they're now engaged in because they want an unblemished bride presented and they want a beautiful wedding to be set forth. Now in our scripture reading this morning, Paul speaks of the submission that we are to have toward one another within the church. And he goes on to give an illustration of that kind of submission when he speaks of husbands and wives. He actually will go on in the sixth chapter. It, in a sense, is sad that the chapter breaks where it does because you get the impression that that's the only reason he brought up this idea of mutual submission is so he could talk about marriage. But in fact, he goes on to talk about masters and servants and children and parents, and there are a number of social relations that are encompassed under this general notion of submission to one another. Marriage is the one he deals with at the end of chapter 5, and in so doing, he brings up an analogy that I hope is well known to you. It will be well known to those who are familiar with their Bibles. The analogy between marriage and Christ in the church. 
The marriage relation mirrors, Paul says, the relation between Christ and his church. Now, most people who read this passage, uh, set it forth as their text for their message, would undoubtedly uh, be thinking of preaching a sermon on husbands and wives. And you might expect that of me this morning. However, I'm going to reverse the mirror, if you will. And I want to look at what Paul says the relationship should be between Christ and the church based on what he has said in this passage in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, he begins with instruction to wives. In the process of the chapter, he's going to give instruction to husbands. But Paul cannot help always falling back into the model of the marriage relation, Christ and the church. In fact, he gets down to the end of the chapter and he says, Now, this mystery is great, but now remember, I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's no great mystery about human marriage. The mystery is this relationship between Christ and the church. And Paul, you see, is so consumed with that thought, and that is of such prior importance to him, that he can't help but talk about the background to marriage, and uh, he doesn't keep his thoughts, if you will, just strictly on a husband and wife. In verse 22, he tells wives to be in subjection to their own husbands as unto the Lord, and verse 23 gives the reason, because the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church being himself the savior of the body. What is the relationship between Christ and the church? Well, Paul begins by saying Christ is head of the church. And as head of this relationship, Christ accepts responsibility for the church. Christ accepts the responsibility in the ultimate sense because he is the savior of the body. Paul says he is willing to sacrifice his own concerns sacrifice his own life for the sake of the church and its salvation. What we see in the example of Christ is the model of absolutely unselfish love. Verse 25, later in the chapter, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Christ loved the church. And the love that Paul talks about here is not... He could have, because of the marriage relation, spoken of eros, the kind of love in the Greek that is a passionate kind of love, a physical kind of love. He could have spoken of the family love that exists between members of the family, friends, the phileo type of love, but instead he refers to the ultimate, the unselfish, self-giving kind of love, agape. Christ loved the church, and love means self-sacrifice. Christ is head of the church, savior of the body. He has given himself completely for it. And for that reason, the church is responsible to Christ. And that's why wives are in subjection to their husbands, because the church is to be in subjection to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. And so the church, in verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. You notice it's in all things that the church is to be in subjection to Christ. And wives, you're to submit yourselves to your husbands in all things in the Lord. Paul does something here, though, that I have to, as a marriage counselor, regard as somewhat dangerous for the late 20th century. He says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be also to their husbands in everything. So that if I'm dealing with a marriage problem in our church, 
if I have somebody come to me with a distress in their relationship, and I want to exhort the wife to learn humility and submission to her husband, I should be able to say, you see the way the church submits to Christ? That's the model for you to submit to your husband. But you see how dangerous that would be today? I'm not talking about the danger that wives don't submit to their husbands. I'm talking about the far greater danger today that the church doesn't look very submissive to Christ. I mean, everywhere you look, you find organizations, groups, calling themselves the church that show no submission whatsoever. They preach their own thoughts and their own wisdom. They guide their lives and their programs not according to the Word of God, not according to the standards laid down in Scripture, but according to what fits into our modern culture. What is going to be socially acceptable today? What's going to be popular with men? Oh, but it would be far too easy, you see, to leave my criticism there. Um, we're always, I guess, dumping on the liberal and neo-Orthodox churches of our day. No, my friends, the difficulty is that I can't exhort wives to model their behavior after the church, even when we look at the evangelical church, even when we look at the Reformation churches, even when we look at the Orthodox Presbyterian church, even when we look at our church, our congregation. I don't want wives to submit to their husbands the way we submit to Christ. I want wives and churches, including our own church, to learn due humility and submission, one that is not at all seen in the way that it should be in our day and age. The church is presented in Ephesians 5 as the bride of Christ. This is a common image in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's a very important one. The people of God, the Jews of the Old Testament, were considered the wife of Jehovah. He was their husband. I could give you a half a dozen references here, but let me just read a couple of them. Isaiah 54, beginning at verse 1. Turn in the Old Testament to Isaiah 54, and we'll read the beginning of that chapter. God says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Jehovah. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and straighten thy stakes. For thou shalt spread abroad on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall possess the nations, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and the reproach of thy widowhood, thou shalt, re thou shalt remember no more. For thy maker is thy husband, Jehovah of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is thy Redeemer. The God of the whole earth shall he be called, for Jehovah hath called thee as a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even as a wife of youth, when she is cast off, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercy shall I gather thee. In overflowing wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Jehovah thy Redeemer. Here Israel is told, you are like a widow 
You were like a forsaken wife, but now God will come again to you. You will be a wife that rejoices. Your children will spread abroad, and God will take pleasure in his wife. God will take pleasure in his people. Now this image of Israel being the wife of Jehovah, forsaken of God, but taken back in, is expanded at some great length in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 16. So turn now to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, and we'll read a fairly long portion here because the story is an important one. Please pay very close attention now. Again, the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of the Canaanite. The Amorite was thy father, and thy mother was a Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to cleanse thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No eye pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field, for that thy person was abhorred in the day that thou wast born. It's a very ugly story that Ezekiel begins with. He says, when you were born, your navel wasn't even properly cut. You were not cleansed. You were not swaddled. You were like a child that some parent throws out in an open field to have it die, exposed to the elements. Verse 6, And when I passed by thee and saw thee weltering in thy blood, I said unto thee, Though thou art in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, Thou... Though thou art in thy blood, live. I caused thee to multiply as that which grows in the field, and thou didst increase and wax great, and thou attendance to excellent ornament. Thy breasts were fashioned, and thy hair was grown, yet thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord Jehovah, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with good broidered work, and shod thee with sealskin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and covered thee with silk, and I decked thee with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a ring upon thy nose, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thy head. Thou was, thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk, embroidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceedingly beautiful. Thou didst prosper into royal estate. And thy renown went forth among the nations for thy beauty, for it was perfect. Through my majesty, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord Jehovah. Yes, you were cast out as a bloody child in a field, and I saved your life. I made you to live. I made you to grow. And in your growth and maturity, you became a beautiful young woman. And I desired you as my wife. And I cast my skirt over your nakedness. And I made a covenant of love with you. And when I did that, I made you to wear the finest of silk. I made you beautiful in the eyes of the nations. I gave you everything. You were beautiful, resplendent. Verse 15, But thou didst trust in thy beauty, 
and plagued the harlot because of thy renown, and poured out thy whoredoms on every one that passed by. His it was. And thou didst take of thy garments and madest for thee high places decked with divers colors, and plagued the harlot upon them. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou didst also take thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest for thee images of men, and didst play the harlot with them. And thou tookest thy broidered garments and coveredst them, and didst set mine oil and mine incense before them. God says, all the good things I gave you, you turned around and you offered to idols. You played the whore with idols. My bread also, which I gave thee, mine fine oil and flour and honey wherewith I fed thee. Thou didst even set it before them for a sweet savor, and thus it was, saith the Lord Jehovah. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Were thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them up, and causing them to pass through the fire unto them? And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare, and was weltering in thy blood. And it has come to pass after all thy wickedness, Woe, woe unto thee, saith the Lord Jehovah, that thou hast built unto thee a vaulted place, and hast made thee a lofty place in every street. Thou hast, thou hast built thy lofty place at the head of every way, and hast made thy beauty an abomination and has opened thy feet to everyone that passed by, and multiplied thy whoredom. Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and has multiplied thy whoredom to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I have stretched out my hand over thee, and have diminished thine ordinary food, and delivered thee unto the will of them that hate thee, the daughters of the Philistines that are ashamed of thy lewd way. Thou hast played the harlot also with the Assyrians, because thou wast insatiable, Yea, thou hast played the harlot with them, and yet thou wast not satisfied. Thou hast moreover multiplied thy whoredom unto the land of traffic unto Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied wherewith. God goes on to speak of the dreadful judgment that shall come upon these people. And he will reject these people, and they will be judged of the nations. And they will have a bill of divorcement written for them. You see how the story just keeps developing in the prophet Ezekiel. We can't take the whole chapter this morning, but if you come to the end, look at verse 60. And now after all this has taken place, God has saved the life of his people. They have grown up to be a young woman that he has married. He has made that young woman beautiful as his bride. The bride has become a whore, however. And now he rejects her and he's going to judge her and all of her lovers. But in verse 60, nevertheless... I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Then shalt thou remember thy ways, and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder sisters, and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am Jehovah, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame, when I have forgiven thee all that thou hast done, saith the Lord Jehovah. And in the end, God says, and I will welcome you back as my bride, and I will forgive you all of your whoredom, and you'll never again open your mouth because of the shame that you will remember and the goodness and forgiveness that I will show to you. 
well, we could look at many more passages, but you see it's an important image in the Bible that God's people are his bride, his wife. And Jesus uses this when he comes in the days of the New Testament. He explains the nature of his kingdom as a marriage supper. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a marriage banquet, a wedding banquet that's being set, and the guests don't show up. And so the master of the banquet sends out his servants into the highways and byways to call people into the banquet, into the marriage supper. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, Jesus likens the kingdom to the virgins who are waiting for the processional of the wedding so that they might go as Jesus comes to receive his kingdom as a groom receives his bride. Look at 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 2, and you'll see Paul's concern for the Corinthian church was the concern of a father for the bride. He says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says, my concern for you, Corinthians, is, is that I have you engaged to Christ. You're to be married to him. And when you come before him, I want you to be presented as a pure, beautiful virgin bride for the Lord. The very consummation of history is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, verse 2, the Apostle John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 9, And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In chapter 19, previously, John has had a vision recorded for him in verse 7 the singing of the chorus in heaven is let us rejoice and be exceeding glad and let us give the glory unto him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints so repeatedly through the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament parables, the epistles of Paul, and the very consummation of history recorded in the book of Revelation. Repeatedly, we have presented to us the idea that God's people should adorn themselves as a bride for their husband, the Lord. This is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 5 then, when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And even as the church is subject to Christ, so wives should be subject to their husbands and everything. And even as Christ loved himself self-sacrificially for the church, so husbands should love their wives. And so we have the idea throughout the scriptures that the church is a bride. And what I want you to focus on now is the point of this morning's exhortation is found in Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. Why did Christ give himself for the church? That he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
that embarrassing scene with which we began the exhortation this morning is not to be a scene that takes place between Christ and the church. Christ does not want a blemished bride. He has given his life. He is working with the church through his spirit for this very purpose, that the church would be a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, holy, cleansed, without any blemishes at all. Paul, first of all, says that Christ has done this that he might sanctify the church. It's interesting that at least um, for many centuries previous, I don't know if it extends all the way back to the days in the New Testament, but at the time of a Jewish engagement, the words spoken by the uh, groom, the husband-to-be, were these, you are now sanctified to me. You are now set aside, consecrated to me. Christ gave himself that he might sanctify the church, set it apart by his blood, by his redemptive work, set the church apart for service to him alone. And Paul says he sanctified it and cleansed it by the washing of water with the word. In a, Jer in a Jewish wedding, even of the New Testament era, the bride, before she went to her wedding banquet, would take a ceremonial bath. Jesus has cleansed the church. He has made it his own, set it aside for him. He has cleansed it. The visible sign of the cleansing of the church, of course, is baptism. Paul does not believe that baptism works automatically. He says it is the cleansing with water, with the word. When the word of God is received, then that outward visible sign of cleansing is a sign of an inward reality that God has cleansed our hearts and made us fit for him. As Calvin said very appropriately, the sacraments are seals of the word of God. And when you listen to the word of God and you believe the word and obey the word, then your baptism, you see, is sealed. In verse 27, Paul continues, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He wants a church that's brilliant in purity, without spot and without wrinkle. He doesn't want a bride coming down the aisle, you see, that has the stains of sin upon her. He doesn't want a bride coming down the aisle that's wrinkled with the decadence of age. He wants the young, virgin, pure bride that he's espoused. He wants a church that does not have anything that mars its beauty. Just think of the preparation a wife makes for her marriage so that she may appear before her husband in all of her beauty. Many of you here who are married, think about what you went through before your wedding ceremony. A bride wants to be seen as lovely, as glorious by everybody, but especially by her husband. And prior to the procession to the wedding feast, the Jewish bride prepared and adorned herself in her best attire. She wanted to be perfect in beauty, splendidly adorned. And this is what Paul's referring to. He says, Christ wants to present you to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He doesn't want anything in the way of the beauty of his church. And then he adds these words, that it should be holy and without blemish. Holy and without blemish. 
That word holy means set apart, consecrated, dedicated to him. He wants a church that lives and dies for him. And he wants it without blemish. He wants it free from every fault. If you look at Colossians 1 verse 22, you'll see that this is the very purpose of the death of Christ. The very reason for which he died. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. Christ died that we might be holy and without blemish. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul tells us that when God chose the elect before the foundation of the world, he predestined them for this very purpose even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. Listen to those words. Holy and without blemish before him in love. Since God's electing grace serves the purpose of making us holy and without blemish, and since Paul later says it's the church's task to be presented before Christ the Savior as holy and without blemish. It should be evident to you that our personal sanctification, our personal walk by the power of God's grace, cannot be consummated and cannot be perfect apart from the church. There is no rugged individualism in the New Testament gospel. Yes, we have been predestined individually, but we are going to be consummated as a people of God. And that holiness that being without blemish is not just the condition of us as individuals, it's the condition of God's gathered, consummated people. And notice that we are to be holy and without blemish before Him. Oh, it'd be easy to be holy and without blemish before the world. I mean, just look at what's happening around about us. Oh, we must look wonderful by comparison to the world. Or if you compared your good deeds and the character of your life to the neighbors that you have around about you, you might think, well, I'm really good. But you see, God doesn't want a holiness before the world. God doesn't want the world to be able to say we are without blemish. He wants us to stand before Him without blemish. With His glorious, majestic, holy standards, He wants the church to be completely without spot, wrinkle, holy, without blemish. This language of being without blemish is an important matter because in the Old Testament, only a perfect animal could be offered in sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, for instance, in Leviticus 1, if you want to get an example of this, Leviticus 1, verses 3 and 10, we see the law of sacrifice for the Old Testament. Leviticus 1, verse 3, if his oblation be a burnt offering of the herd, he shall offer it a male without blemish. He shall offer it at the door of the tent of meeting. And then Leviticus 1 verse 10, another illustration of this. And if his oblation be of the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without blemish. And repeatedly through Leviticus, this is the requirement, that anything that is offered to the Lord must be spotless must be without blemish. And that's why Christ, as the sacrifice for sin, had to be sin-free. 
without blemish. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and 1 Peter, chapter 1, emphasize that he is a lamb without blemish, a spotless offering given to God. And now we have that language turned around and applied to the church. Christ, the spotless lamb of God, the sinless groom, wants a spotless bride, a bride without blemish, And not without blemish by human standards, but without blemish before Him. Free from fault before Him. This is what Christ is looking for in a church. And it's not what Christ is finding in this church. If the marriage supper of the Lamb were to take place today, my fear would be that it would be a blemished bride that the Lord would have to receive. And of course, he wouldn't receive a blemished bride. Oh, there are a lot of problems that need to be worked out if we're going to be the kind of bride that Christ wants us to be as a church. Let me think of some of the blemishes and blots that are on us as a congregation. And I think about our involvement as a church with one another. Sadly, I have to think of the word isolation. So often, I'm afraid that many of us who are going to be consummated together as the people of God live lives in isolation from one another. It's of interest to me that in the last few weeks in talking to a handful of individuals, one of the things that has been mentioned repeatedly is a lack of friendliness being felt. It's shown... Uh, outwardly anyway, but a lack of friendliness being felt between people. And um, I don't know, I have this this kind of ironic, wicked little thought in the back of my mind that if everyone who is feeling this way were to begin looking for other people who are feeling this way, there'd be an awful lot of felt friendliness in the church. It's strange that so many people are having the same kind of feeling. Isolation, a lack of felt friendliness... There's also, I suppose, the blot that Christ is concerned about and the easy way in which we absent ourselves from the worship of his name. That isn't to say, of course, that there is never a reason why people should be absent from church. It certainly isn't to say that uh, the one and only thing we ever are called upon to do at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning is to be here, but it is to say it's the highest priority. It certainly is. I want you to remember how you're going to spend eternity. You're going to spend eternity praising God. You see, and what we get together at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings to do is to get used to doing that, to learn to do that. It is the highest calling of the Church of Jesus Christ to glorify His name. Not just in deeds. Believe me, there's plenty of things that could be said about churches that do nothing but worship and have no outward deeds in the world. That's not genuine worship. It doesn't lead to service. But we can't pretend that we can serve God individually in the world, isolated from one another, and ignore the worship of God corporately on the Lord's day. And another blot on our church. Concern for others. It was commented this week um, by one individual in the congregation, I think it was a very well-taken criticism, that often enough on Sunday mornings we, we voice our concerns at the time of prayer. Somebody might mention, say, a, a child that is ill or a, 
or a problem, a financial problem, or something that someone's going through. How often do we follow up on that? Yes, we pray corporately about it. How often do we call these individuals during the week? Or even next, in the next week say, how did things work out? I've been in prayer for you. I think about our half-hearted loyalty to the programs of the church. Uh, that is shown sometimes in the way we give. We often think that there are many things that are of greater worth than the programs of the church. We often, it seems to me, make use and have priorities in our financial spending, which are not God's priorities. There is little time for involvement, very little time for a true commitment to seeing things through. How about seeking the loss? And so often when we talk about evangelism, we give the impression that that's the special task of certain individuals. Well, there is a special office of evangelist. I don't deny that. Some people are given a special gift for evangelism. But all of God's people are to evangelize. All of God's people are to be inviting people to praise God with them, to know his son, Jesus Christ, in a saving fashion. I think another wrinkle and another spot we have to think about when we talk about our congregation is willingness to serve. Sometimes it uh, saddens me that so often the people, the faces that I see putting in the hard work of doing the various tasks for our church are the same faces. And it's not because these people are seeking to be merry martyrs or to be, if you will, patted on the back by men. It's because so often they feel that if they don't do it, it won't get done. And then, of course, we have our differences of opinion, too, that get in the way of having the kind of church that Christ wants us to be, of one mind, committed to one another in love. Uh, what, this is only one passing illustration, but it's one that's come up recently. There are so many different preconceptions of what worship should be like. Uh, we have a church here that is genuinely divided between those who think we should be more formal in what we are doing and those who wish we were less formal in what we are already doing. And, and what I would exhort you to do on this matter as with others, but let me just speak to this one since it's the illustration at hand, on this matter is to put our differences in perspective put our differences in perspective, the dividing line between men in the eyes of God is the division between covenant keepers and covenant breakers, not between those who have robes in worship or those who use guitars. The dividing point is the covenant and obedience to the covenant and commitment to the stipulations of the covenant. And so for all of our other differences, let's remember that we belong to a common Savior, we commonly belong to that Savior, that we are all His, and that whatever differences we have in our preconceptions and personal feelings about how worship should be conducted or anything else in the church, that these are subordinate matters. For God's sake, keep things in perspective, my friends, because Christ doesn't want a bride that is torn, tugged upon, wrinkled, blotted, spotted and blemished. He's looking for a bride that serves him with everything, that submits to him in all things, that loves him in recognition that he has given up everything for that bride and continues to work daily to present that bride to himself without blemish. 
Yeah, there are a lot of problems. Obviously, I could have mentioned many more. And if I wanted to be more uh, gladly accepted in what I was saying this morning, I could have talked about other congregations. But that doesn't really, it seems to me, get to where the problem is. We need to learn to put on unblemished clothing, to adorn ourselves as a bride ready for Christ. There are three things we can do as we think about the problems that we have as a church. They all begin with a G, so they're easy to remember. First, we can gripe. Just imagine what would happen if, as in the opening story of my sermon this morning, if this young lady had shown up all blotted and wrinkled and uh, spotted for her wedding. You can be sure there'd be a lot of murmuring, a lot of criticism, a lot of gossip, a lot of griping going on. A lot of people would talk about her for a long time. Did you see the way she came to her wedding? I can't believe it. You know what's wrong, though? Whenever we set ourselves over against the bride and point the finger, even in hushed tones, to tell people how blemished she looked on the day of her wedding, whenever we do that, we're setting ourselves apart from her. We're saying, there's the bride out there, and here's the social critic here. And the problem is that the bride that we're criticizing when it comes to the church is ourselves. Yeah, we can gripe. We can say so-and-so should do this, or this or that should be done by the church. But I think a little aphorism given by Mark Twain is appropriate there. Twain once said, to do good is noble. To advise others to do good is also noble and much less trouble. Oh yeah, we can all point the finger at the blemished bride. We can all say, boy, she should have put on better makeup. She should have had her, her hair done at this place. She should have worn a dress that was properly um, uh, pressed. She should have looked this way. But you see, to advise others is a noble thing. It's not very much trouble. To do the things that we advise others is what I think God would call upon us to do here. Well, we could gripe. We could also give up. I've seen that. I've seen that ever since I began in the ministry, way back in the summer of 1966. Every place I've been, I've seen in groups, there are problems, blemishes in the group. And there are some people who do a lot of griping about it, and there are some people whose attitude is, well, I just give up. Just walk away from it either because I'm the one that's at fault and I don't care to change, or I'm so fed up in this high and mighty fashion with the fact that others aren't changing that I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I once wrote a letter to some former friends. Sadly, they, I guess they are now former friends because of my letter. I once wrote a letter to them exhorting them to live a life of obedience within the confines of God's church. To recognize that when orders are given about the church, they are just as much orders as the order, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, don't bear false witness. The problem is that my friends, my former friends anyway, at that time had a hierarchy. Without saying so, they had a hierarchy in their mind between the really important sins and the really trivial matters. And you see, and when God spoke things about the government and what the government was to do, that was important. 
And when God told us not to kill people, that was important. And when God talked about personal integrity and honesty and financial matters, that was important. But when God talked about his people, when God talked about praise, when God talked about love, when God talked about reconciliation, when God talked about all those other sorts of things in the New Testament, they were taken as, you know, kind of tapering off there at the end of what's really important ethically. We need to get rid of this hierarchy in our minds that allows us to dismiss the faults of the congregation as somehow insubordinate or insignificant. Every one of those, in Paul's eyes, amounts to a wrinkle and a spot and a blemish. And in the end, when we appear before Christ, it will not be sufficient to say, I've done pretty well individually. He's going to look for a bride, a people, a corporate union of God's redeemed congregation that is without spot and wrinkle and blemish. And so giving up is not an option for the Christian. To give up being the bride of Christ is to give up being redeemed. Those are strong words. I'm going to say them again so that they sink in. To give up being the bride of Christ is to give up being redeemed. You cannot walk away from the church. You cannot walk away from its faults. You cannot walk away from the, the wrinkles that you put upon it. God just as much wants you to change that as he wants you to change your dishonesty and your lust. They are all sins in his eyes. Individual, social, ecclesiastical, it's sin. And the covenant calls for a purity of life throughout. What is the first and great commandment that God gives us? It doesn't have to do with socialism. The first and great commandment doesn't have to do with sexual purity. The first and great commandment has to do with loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. A comprehensive reorientation of our lives so that in everything, not just politics, economics, schooling, family life, or individual morality, in everything, including the church and my relationship to others, in everything, God is loved. So that that is the all-consuming passion of my life, to be a covenant keeper everywhere. You, know, you can gripe, you can give up, or you can start grooming. You know, what if you were going to get married next week and you found that um, you needed a haircut? You needed to take a shower. You needed to buy some new clothes. My guess is that if any of you were in that condition, you'd start grooming. You'd start preparing. You'd start working to be that model of the unblemished bride, or groom in this case, that you want to be. You'd strive for the ideal. You wouldn't sit around waiting to 10 minutes before your wedding, griping and complaining about all the problems you have. And I don't think you would give up either. I don't think you'd say, well, I'm just never going to be a bride. I'm never going to be a, a groom. No, you'd start grooming. You'd start correcting these problems. You'd start remembering that you haven't got any choice. You're going to show up at the altar. You might as well show up looking your best. Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. All right. We're a blemished bride. 
you can gripe about it, you can give up on us, or you can start with us to groom to be what God wants us to be. And by the way, the church will be groomed. The church will overcome its difficulties. The church will be glorified with you or without you, with your griping, without your griping. For we read in the book of Revelation, as I've said before, the chorus of heaven singing, let us rejoice and be exceeding glad and let us give the glory unto him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The church is grooming for a beautiful marriage banquet in the future. The church will be received properly adorned by Christ. The blemished bride will one day be unblemished and acceptable to the husband. I hope that you'll accept the wedding invitation. I hope that you'll be there. I hope you will be numbered among those who are the bride of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we are embarrassed to stand before you because we want to stand before you whole. We want to stand before you perfect. We want to stand before you clean. And yet when we look at ourselves individually, when we look at our churches, indeed when we look at our own church, we freely confess that we are blemished, that we are still in our blood, that we are torn and ragged and unclean. And so, God, our only plea is that you would indeed cleanse us, wash us, and receive us, strengthened in the inner man by your Holy Spirit. Enable us to groom ourselves as a bride adorns herself for her husband. Enable us to keep our eyes set upon that day of consummation when we will enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb and we will enjoy it as your people, as your bride, as your beloved and chosen wife. Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. We know what it is to be down on ourselves and to be down on others. But do take away our spirit of griping and give us a spirit of commitment in its place. And Lord, we know how easy it would be to give up and to think we can walk away from our problems. We pray you would take away that defeatist spirit and give us a spirit of hope and optimism that you will adorn your bride, that you will make her ready, and that because you, the sovereign redeemer of God's elect, are going to accomplish these things, we can count on them being done, that the work will be accomplished, and that your church will grow to be the kind of body you want it to be. Lord, we ask that you would enable us with enthusiasm, with joy, with due humility to accept the cleansing that has been brought by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now, by the power of your Spirit, set ourselves to grooming the church for its day of wedding festivity. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.